it's fun having my wife and family here. Usually, you know, usually your kids don't want to do church twice in one day. So, but, but we made him come. <laughs> we made him come tonight. Uh, all right, so I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 23. I'm going to start in verse 39 to catch that first word. And then to pick up the second word as well. So, page 1059 in your pew Bible if you need it. And I'm going to invite you, for those of you who are able, would you stand um, for the reading of God's word. I'm starting verse 33. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as you're seated. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the way that you have preserved these words for us so many years later that we could um, enter into what Luke is saying and hear these incredible words of encouragement and promise. And I pray that you would uh, lift our eyes to you. Jesus, would you be our teacher? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So during my sabbatical uh, a couple years ago, I took uh, some time to do a little spiritual retreat up at Cedar Springs in Sumas, and during those couple days, uh, I was going through an exercise of looking back over the decades of my life and kind of noting the highs and the lows, the ups and downs, and uh, if you ever stop to do th- that sometime, by the way, there are some moments that you wonder, wow, how did I ever make it through that? One of the things that I did during that look back was to count up how many funerals that I have done during my time as, as a pastor. And I have counted that I have done 56 funerals uh, in just the 12 years that I've been the senior pastor there at First Baptist Church. And we're a church of just 150 people. Now, I don't know how that compares to other pastors, but in those moments, in those many moments with 
the family, the loved ones, friends of those who have died, uh, there's often two questions that many of the family members wrestle with in those moments. One is the why question. Why did this person have to die? And it's an interesting question because, you know, if we just stand back from a purely objective point of view, as objective as we can be, from a purely objective point of view, we all know the statistics on death, right? One out of every one person will die at some point in their life. You can count on it. So I think the question behind the question of why did this person have to die is why did this person have to die at this time or why did this person have to die in this manner or under these circumstances? And it's in those moments, it's that why question that we recognize death as the intruder that it is. We can prepare for it all we want, all we think we want, all we think we can. And even still, it's a shock and a surprise and a mountain to climb or a valley to go through. The other question that many people have that I've experienced in walking with people through these moments in their lives. Uh, the other question is, what happens when you die? Where is this person now? Their physical presence is no longer with us, but then what? Is that it? And I think it is good every now and then to take moments like what we're doing here tonight, um, outside of the emotions of a funeral service, away from the deathbed of a loved one, and at least a little bit. I know many of you are grieving and uh, mourning the loss of someone very special and someone so beloved in your church community, your faith community. Um, I think it's good to try to take these kinds of moments and try to hear from God's word, try to hear from God about what happens when, he, when we die. He has, he has good news for us. Uh, in the moments, uh, you know, in the moments of pain and grief and loss and, you know, planning a funeral, dealing with all of your family members' emotions and behaviors, dealing with your own emotions and feelings, uh, sometimes it's just hard to think about Jesus' good news. Sometimes it's hard to think about uh, what Jesus has for us uh, as far as words of promise and words of encouragement. And so the second word that Jesus speaks from the cross is a word of assurance. It's a word of confidence. It's a word of comfort. It's a word of promise. First to the criminal on the cross, and for us today as well. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now that's the snapshot. Let's zoom out a little bit and take a look at the context that Jesus is saying these words of assurance and comfort and encouragement. As Chris mentioned, as, you, as, you, as we've been observing, uh, this is the season of Lent in the life of the church, that period of time where followers of Christ all over the world, I love that about this season, I love that about church history, is that we are not an ahistorical people. We are part of something greater than ourselves, something that's been going on for a very, very long time. During this time of the year and the season of life of the church, 
We're followers of Christ all over the world. They spend, we spend time focusing on the suffering and death of Christ and what it means for our lives. We slow down. We meditate on the events surrounding Jesus' death on the cross. And we, in turn, think about our own mortality. We think about the gift that it is, that it, we even have the next breath that we breathe. We take this season to consider not just the here and now, but what comes after the here and now, both for ourselves and for our loved ones that we have said goodbye to. In this moment in history, in Luke 23, when Jesus is saying these words, we see him hanging on the cross in the very process of bearing the weight of all the world's sin upon his shoulders. Luke tells us that Jesus is in between two criminals or thieves. So I want you to kind of imagine yourself there at the cross, uh, one on his left, one on his right. And Jesus' first words from that place of torture is a prayer. <laughs> That's always blows my mind. The first word that we hear from Jesus uh, to his, is a prayer to his father for his enemies, a prayer of forgiveness for his enemies. The soldiers are biding their time, gambling for Jesus' clothes. They're indifferent to the, <laughs> the impact of what's going on at the moment. The people, the crowd uh, is looking on. Make, they're making fun. They're taunting Jesus to come down from the cross if he was such a man of God. The religious leaders are sneering at him. The political leaders have put up a sign saying, this is the king of the Jews, all in a show of mockery and taunting. And then one of the criminals gets in on the taunting. Verse 39. I see it as kind of a final act of self-preservation, desperation. One of the criminals shouts over to him, Hey, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. You know, I like how he puts that in there. And us. The, the other two uh, groups were like, eh, If you were really the Son of God, you would save yourself. Oh. The soldiers mocking him, hey, if you were really the Messiah, save yourself. This guy gets himself in there as well uh, to try to uh, make it benefit himself. Hey, why not? He's got nothing left to lose, right? It's at that moment that something surprising happens. It's an incredible surprise. The other criminal comes to the defense of Jesus. Jesus' words of promise about being with him in paradise are spoken to that man who has turned to Christ in faith. So who is this person? Who is this man? Who is this person that gets in? Well, take a look. This person admits a fear of God. He admits a respect for who God is and how God is working in the world. Don't you fear God? This person admits a fear of God. This person acknowledges his own guilt. Did you notice that? He, he knows that he is not righteous or rightly related to God. He knows that he has done things that are deserving of death. And you know, it must have been pretty bad in order to warrant the horribleness of crucifixion. This man acknowledges the injustice of all that's happening there. This person acknowledges that Jesus has done nothing wrong. This person turns to Jesus in faith. 
he's heard the stories of Jesus. He's heard what he's done, how Jesus has been eating and making friends with sinful people. The thief has seen how Jesus has handled everything that's been happening to him over the course of the last few hours. The thief has heard how Jesus calls down forgiveness for those who are crucifying him. He's not calling down curses on his enemies. This person has seen the sign above Jesus' head that tells the truth of who Jesus is. He is the king. And something in this man turns. He turns to Jesus. Something in his heart turns, causes him to turn to Jesus. Think about it. He talks to the criminal who was bad-mouthing Jesus. He turns. He turns from his old way of life, and he turns to Jesus. He rebukes the other criminal. He turns to Jesus, looks at him, calls him by name, and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This person wants what we all want. We want to be remembered by those who matter most. This person wants what we all want. He wants salvation. He wants to know what's going to happen to him when he dies. And he's got nothing left to lose, so he asks to be remembered. Now, in the Greek language there, the, the word for remember me is one of those passive imperatives which seems to be a more respectful way to command God to do something. Uh, we see them in the Lord's Prayer, right? When Jesus teaches us to pray, be hallowed your kingdom, be, be hallowed your name, come your kingdom, be done your will. The thief says to Jesus, remember me. Remember me. Me. He doesn't say, Jesus, please remember all the good things that I've done. Forget about all the bad things that I've done. He probably wants Jesus to just forget about all the stuff that he's done as a criminal. He doesn't say, Jesus, remember all the good things that I've done. And hopefully that's, that's good enough to, for you to remember me when you come into your kingdom. He doesn't say, remember the good things I've done. He doesn't say, remember my good intentions of how, you know, one, of how I promise one day that I will get right with God. Let me just, I need to take care of some things first. I need to get rid of this. I need to get rid of that. Uh, and then I'll, then I'll get right with God. He doesn't say, remember my good intentions. No, he says, remember me. He comes just as he is to Jesus. Remember me. You can, turn to, you can turn to Jesus with whatever amount of faith that you have. You don't have to come to Jesus with a list of all the good things that you have done for him to accept you and to save you. Look to Jesus. See in him your Savior. Call to him by name and ask him to remember you. The thief respectfully commands slash asks <laughs> that Jesus remember him. And how does Jesus respond? Okay. Now, Jesus does not speak with the other criminal. Maybe you notice that. He doesn't speak with the other person who set his heart against Jesus. Jesus speaks to the one with faith. It's the person of faith that is invited in. I think Luke, 
is challenging his readers, and I think Luke is challenging us today about these two ways of responding to Jesus. Here, here he is in the middle of two, respo- uh, two different responses. Here Jesus is in the middle of two different responses. One response to Jesus receives the invitation, receives the promise. The other does not. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think Luke is challenging us, how are we going to respond? Truly I tell you, you will be with me today in paradise. Uh, these, are incredible, these are incredible words of comfort. These are incredible words of assurance and security and significance for us. And even as Jesus is giving his life away as a ransom for many, he is assuring us, he is comforting us just as he's assuring and comforting this criminal. So I'd like to just kind of walk through, kind of break down that, uh, that phrase. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. He starts out with, I tell you the truth. Uh, the, that's the NIV translation that we read. That's um, the NIV trans- translation of what literally reads, Amen, I tell you. Amen. Uh, Matthew in his book, he, he uses that word amen all over the place, uh, usually doubled up. Amen, amen, truly, truly, I tell you. Uh, Luke uses it a lot more sparingly, just six times, and this one here in chapter 23 is the sixth time that he uses it. You probably know that by using that word amen, Jesus is grounding what he is about to say in rock-solid reality. You can go all in with what Jesus is about to say. This is a very clear promise here us. Amen. The next thing he says is, I tell you. I tell you. Now that's quite audacious. (laughs) Jesus doesn't consult any kind of past teaching text. He doesn't consult any set of sacred sayings. He doesn't refer to what some other rabbi has taught about uh, his belief of the afterlife. Jesus doesn't do any of that. I, I tell you. Jesus knows He knows what he's talking about. He knows what lies beyond the point of death. Amen. Truly, I tell you. To to you, Jesus gets very personal. To you, I am saying this to you. He speaks very directly. He speaks very directly to the one who is repentant. He speaks very directly to the one with faith. Truly, I say to you today. Amen. I tell you today. Today. I love that word today. Uh, Now, over the years, there's been some disagreement in the church. Can you imagine it? Disagreement in the church over the years uh, about where exactly the comma goes around this word today, all right? So churches disagree about punctuation. Some lines of thought have said that the comma goes after the word, as in, truly I tell you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Now, this has led some faith traditions to believe in what's called soul sleep. How many of you have heard of soul sleep before? Yeah, soul sleep is, um, is the idea where your soul goes to sleep when you die, and you're not conscious of anything until the resurrection at the end of all things, at the very, very end. All right, so, um, so it's a way, uh, if, if we put the comma there, it's like, you will be 
with me in paradise. You will be with me in paradise someday. Putting the comma there has also led to the purgatory line of thought. How many of you have heard of purgatory? I just want to see what, yeah. So soul sleep, not so much. Purgatory um, is a lot more prevalent. Uh, purgatory line of thought is, uh, right, is a, it's a place that you go where you die in order to work off the sins that you committed in your life on earth uh, or even where you learn more about Jesus and you get more chances to say yes to Jesus. So uh, there's been disagreement of do we put the comma there. Truly I tell you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. But I think it's more likely that the comma goes before the word today. As in, truly, I tell you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. I think it makes more sense with how Luke uses that word today in the other five times in his book. I think it makes more sense, more logical sense as well, because why make a point about it being today when there's actually no tomorrow for them? Anyway. You know, like I tell you this today, but tomorrow I might tell you something different. <laughs> I also think that uh, it goes uh, before the word because of the parallel language used here in the exchange between the criminal and Jesus. I get this from Arthur Pink. Um, you, hear, you hear the criminal say, he said to Jesus, and the parallel language, Jesus said to him. The criminal says, Lord... In, the, uh, in, um, in some manu early manuscripts, uh, it includes the word Lord. Lord, and Jesus says, truly I tell you, remember me, you will be with me, when you come, when? Today, into your kingdom, in paradise. So today parallels the timing issue for the thief. And then I also think about the way other scripture writers talk about what happens at uh, the moment of, of death. Paul talks in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, about um, how, quote, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul says. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. We see in places like the transfiguration of Jesus that both Elijah and Moses are with Jesus even though they have died. Elijah has been taken up. Moses died the traditional way of, of your body going, going to sleep. Uh, so we see in the transfiguration that Elijah and Moses are with Jesus in the moment. We see in Revelation chapter 7, we see what John sees, that there are uncountable numbers of saints who have already died, and they are gathered around the throne of Christ. They're waving palm branches. They are worshiping him. It's a great uh, picture of encouragement and assurance for us as well, that we will see our loved ones and friends as well at the moment of our death as well. Because um, all the saints are there gathered around the throne, worshiping Jesus. There's other places in the scriptures as well. So all of this means that the word today is emphatic. It means today salvation is available. Blessing is immediately available because right 
then at that moment of death, you are with Christ. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me. You don't have to wait in soul sleep for too long. Uh, you know how when you sleep too long and you, and you wake up and you just don't feel very good? Yeah, it's not going to be like that. <laughs> You're gonna, your body's going to go to sleep, but your soul does not. Your soul is with Christ immediately. There's no purgatory. There's no waiting to be with Jesus any longer. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not even death can separate you from Christ. Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate. Today's the day, Jesus tells the thief. Today's the day you will be with me in paradise. There's the last little phrase right there. In paradise. He's promising the thief a place. So what is this place that Jesus is talking about here? Is he talking about the love theme song from Footloose? No. You know, almost paradise. <laughs> I, every time I hear the word paradise, I can't think of all the, I can't help but think of all these rock songs. Yeah, what do you think of? Almost paradise. <laughs> you know how it goes. What do you think about when you hear the word paradise, right? I mean, you probably think of the best place that you can imagine. You want to go to there. The actual word paradise, that word paradise, is borrowed from the Persian culture, brought over into the Greco-Roman world as a way to describe the garden of a king. As the Greek culture began making its way through the world, you had the Babylonian culture, right, then Persian, then the Greek culture came in, then the Roman culture came in. As the uh, Greek culture was coming in, taking over the Persian culture, began making its way through the, through the world, right about that time, the Hebrew religious scholars of the day, they translated the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language, right, known as the Septuagint. And when they were trying to figure out a term to translate the Hebrew word for garden in Genesis chapter 2, they thought, oh, this is, this is the garden of the king. So they used the word paradise. The garden of Eden back in Genesis chapter 2, was described as a paradise. And then by the time you get to Jesus' day, and as you bring in the Old Testament prophets, you bring in their description of God, who is going to remake and restore the world to Garden of Eden-type status one day, right? Isaiah 53, etc. The concept behind the word paradise had taken on a transcendent quality to it to refer to the place of blessedness and righteousness where your soul went after you die. Now, N.T. Wright reminds us that in their minds, in Jesus' day, in the Jewish minds of their day, paradise was not necessarily your final resting place. It was a place of rest and refreshment before the gift of new life in the resurrection. So think back to Genesis chapter 2, think back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, the garden in Genesis chapter 2 was always seen as a miniature model on earth of what is in heaven. So 
What you have in heaven is a heavenly paradise that God has created where he dwells with his angels, right? Both heavens and the earth were created, heaven before the earth. God wants to share his love with human beings, so he creates the earth with the mini replica of heaven on earth, the Garden of Eden. But what happens? You know the story. At some point in this heavenly paradise, Satan wants to be independent of God. He wants to make his own choices. He wants to you know, free, be free to pursue his own passions and desires and will. So what happens to him? He gets cast out of heaven to the earth where he deceives the first human beings. The first human beings, they want their independence from God. They want to be their own gods themselves. And as a result, God kicks them out of the garden because of sin, right? Which, by the way, is a, an incredibly merciful thing for God to do because otherwise they would have been able to stay in their, stin- in their sinful state forever, eating from the tree of life. They're in the sinful state. If they still had access to the tree of life, they would be forever sinful. Instead, God kicks them out, death enters the world, and the human race has been trying ever since to get back to that place of flourishing and wholeness and health and happiness, right? It's what our culture is haunted by. It's what people are longing for deep in their souls, a place of rest and security and assurance and identity. Thank you so much for praying what you prayed earlier today about health concerns and political concerns we, we, we all want, uh, we, we look for, uh, so many people look for this rest and security and assurance and identity in political leaders or political parties or policies that we hope will finally give us a place of peace and joy. We look for it in all sorts of other places, drugs, comfort, ease, adventure, because it's what we were originally made for, paradise. But no matter how hard we try, we cannot seem to get ourselves back in. So think back to Genesis chapter 3 this time, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. Do you remember what God did to protect them from getting back in and staying in their sinful state forever, right? He positioned two guards with flaming swords blocking the way back into the king's garden. However, in the meantime, there still remains this heavenly paradise. That hasn't gone away. There still remains this heavenly paradise after which the earthly one was patterned. The earthly one is not available to enter anymore, but the heavenly one still remains. And do you remember what happens the day the women go to the tomb after Jesus is buried? Go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. What do they see? The tomb is open, and there's what? Two angels there. They're not guarding anything this time. They're inviting the women in. They're inviting people in. Jesus is the one who can get people in. Jesus is the one who opens access to the Garden of Eden once again. Jesus is the one who invites us to see how the tree of death, the cross, is now a tree of life. 
The only way in to this kind of life is by dying to yourself and letting Jesus give you his life. And just as the thief turned, a literal turning from his old way of life, he looked at Jesus. He recognized his own guilt. He knew he deserved death. And yet he hears the invitation to enter the best gift of life he could ever receive. This is incredible to me. This is, this is mustard seed type faith. Even less than mustard, type, mustard seed faith. This guy didn't even have time to be baptized. I say that as a Baptist, you know. I would have found some way to get him dunked. Just joking, just joking. He didn't have... He, he didn't have time to be baptized. He didn't have time to join a small group. He didn't have time to get his end times theology just right. He just had faith. Now, if you do have time to do all those things, you should pursue those things. <laughs> this man, however, he just had faith, simple faith. It was enough. The smallest amount of faith. It was enough for Jesus. The very last moment of his life. The first, the first person Jesus brings with him through death and into paradise is this criminal. Today you will be with me in paradise. As you read the rest of the Bible, as the rest of the Bible shows us, eventually God will remake the whole of the heavens and the whole of the earth. The last couple of chapters of the Bible in the book of Revelation shows us heaven coming down. There's a city, and right there in the middle of the city is a tree, perhaps a garden, where the people of every nation and race and tongue receive healing and restoration. They receive new bodies filled with power and beauty and holiness. It is going to be very good. So I just want to encourage you today. I just want to bless you today. Do you for yourself, do you have confidence about yourself for that first second after you die? You don't have to worry. You don't have to be confused about it. Jesus invites you to Turn to him in faith. He speaks a word of promise for those who turn to him in faith. Turn from your old way of life and ask him to remember you. You can find incredible encouragement. You can find assurance. You can find incredible comfort in this second word of Jesus from the cross. It's incredible. He's hanging, he's hanging there dying for you, for me. And at the very same time, he makes the point to assure you, to comfort you. He's thinking of you of what happens when you die. Very, very real and powerful question for us today. He is with you all the way. I think that it's even more incredible that even before we die, that kind of life is available to us even now. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Uh, Heavenly Father, first I want to pray that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit, your, your, the great comforter for those who are um, 
living, uh, living this right now, walking through um, the valley of the shadow of death with loved ones or with those they know or just with the, uh, the evangelical covenant community here in Bellingham. I just pray that you would right now just bring great peace and assurance to those who, um, who need it, who need this word, need to hear this word from you tonight. Uh, God, I'm also mindful of, uh, of those of us who have loved ones who we just who we just don't know if they've uh, what what we we don't know if they had faith or not, and so um, we what we see here this this picture of Jesus on the cross is that we can trust you to know, and we can release our friends, our loved ones, our family members into your hands, knowing that no matter how last minute, no matter uh, how small, just the slightest turn to you is enough for you. And I just pray that you would um, help us to trust you. Help us to be people of this promise who recognize our unrighteousness, who recognize our inability to get to that place of security and comfort and peace and deep rest for our souls. We can't do that on our own. Help us to believe that you are the one that gets us where we need to be, where we want to be. I pray for our unbelieving friends and neighbors here in this community, in this city. That we would be people of um, people of this, of this promise who can encourage and walk with our, our friends and neighbors through the valley. gift. What a promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.